Ah, jeez, I gotta get all these papers together quick. I'm already late for the interview as it is. Uh, I just gotta go. Harlestat's gonna be angry with me again. Uh, no! Ah, leave me alone! Don't touch me! Hey, uh, what's going on in there? Am I still on time for our interview? Oh, help! Help me! This, this guy is trying to bite me! Oh, please do come in. I'm just having a late lunch. What? What are you talking about? Please, you have to help me! Wait, Lestat, why is this guy still alive? Is everything okay? You've barely touched your victim. What? I've just been busy today, but I'll get to them in just a minute. Uh, busy? Uh, that doesn't sound like you. Is uh, is something on your mind? <laughs> yes, I've grown ever so tired of just everything around me. Who cares about that? I'm bleeding. Oh, come on, man. Show a little empathy. Let's, uh, all right. So, Lestat, what, what's, what, what's getting on your nerves here? You know, I just don't think that this... Time and the people of this era are cultured enough for me. Something is missing. A certain je ne sais quoi. What is going on here? Well, we're talking about music right now, it sounds like. Are you are you missing the shanties? Is that what it is? It's not just music. It's the entire culture. It's like, on one hand, you've got your heavy guitar riffs, and in a completely other genre... You've got fast rhyming lyrics. And and just the fact that there's no intermingling of them, I'm just, I'm done with all of this. Maybe I'm going insane. That's what's happening. I'm losing it. <laughs> so basically, I've decided that I'm going to go to sleep forever. And so it was that the vampire Lestat went to sleep for all eternity. Which lasted all of eight years, until a strange, new, wonderful, and despairing sound reached his corpse-like ears. What is that? The angst. The syncopation. The drop-D tuning. Perhaps this is the era that I have awaited for so long. It was, of course, the era of new metal. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel. My pronouns are he and him, and I am here with my fantastic co-hosts. Oh, yeah. Uh, my name is Cassidy. My pronouns are they, them, and I am a vampire's thrall, hoping to become a vampire myself in time. What do you think your odds are of getting turned? 2%. <laughs> but, you know, I'm optimistic, so 90. Nice. Wow, that's quite a rounding up. Yeah, yeah, you know. You know, for people who play gotcha games, 2% is basically 90%. Fair enough. Depending on how much money you throw at it. <laughs> yeah, and that's like time that's, served. That's exactly. how odds work, yeah. Yeah. Money is like time served, except it's less fair. 
True. <laughs> That's accurate, maybe. Yeah. If I yeah. serve long enough and faithfully enough, they're bound to turn me, even by accident, someday. Yeah. If that's what vampires, if that's, there's one thing they are, it's uh, honest to faith. Right, right. Seems yeah. accurate to me. Yes. <laughs> but what? <laughs> Who the heck am I? Who the heck are you? I'm Jack Olander. He, him, or she, her. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> who am I? I? I am an actor that is part of a vampiric stage group. Oh, yes. fun. Except uh, I'm apparently uh, I've been with them for 10 years and I only just found out the rest of them are actually vampires. <laughs> Ooh, awkward. Yeah. Uh, do you think they're onto you? Well, uh, they thought I was one, too, because of my good acting and they still don't know yet. Ooh, that's probably for the better. Yeah. Just make sure that you keep those thoughts in your mind bank so that they can't read your thoughts and find out. Oh, I don't often have thoughts. Well, uh, that's lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they think that you're a you're a vampire. They can't read you. Exactly. And all those people we drank, I thought we were just doing method act. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, guys, we're not just here to introduce ourselves. <laughs> really? Because I feel like we could go on all day about this stuff. I feel like we probably could. I feel like some of this material is probably going to end up getting cut. What is this? A Wheel of Time episode? <laughs> not this week. No, no, no. This week, we asked our patrons to vote on a LGBTQIA plus film for us to discuss. And unsurprisingly, they picked possibly the gayest film of the 90s, <laughs> yeah. Interview with the Vampire. Yeah, it's great. I, I figured this one would win. <laughs> yes. One of my friends asked if there was a gay reading of this movie. I said, it's the only reading of this movie. <laughs> I think a more accurate question, or I think a more valid question would be, is there a straight reading of this, of this film? You know, I don't think so. <laughs> but you know, Jamie... What if other people want to vote on the movies that we watch? What are they going to do? You know, it's not as hard as you might think. All you need to do, all you need to do, <laughs> all they got to do is go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and sign up to send us a little something something every month in exchange. They can vote on the movies we watch. They can get bonus episodes that are very fucking good and fun. And our undying love and gratitude. It never dies. <laughs> Much like a vampire. Yes. What I'm saying is our love is vampiric. Nice. <laughs> I see no problems. No notes. <laughs> but speaking of vampires, why don't we talk about Interview with the Vampire? This film is from 1994, from the long distant past. Yes. And it stars Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Kirsten Dunst, Antonio Banderas, and other fine and accomplished actors of the era. Dude, I, like, only partially heard that because I was taking psychic damage realizing that this movie came out almost 30 years ago. That's fair. <laughs> yes. Oh, also, Christian Slater's in it, but, you know, whatever. Right. I just got distracted by the Dunst, because it's a good name. <laughs> Dunst. Dunst. Also, this film was directed by Neil Jordan. Who, of course, directed... Breakfast on Pluto. Acclaimed director of The Crying Game, 
Michael Collins, and the brave one. With Jodie Foster. You know, I liked that movie a few years ago when I saw it, or several, many years ago. I can't remember now. <laughs> More than a decade, certainly. Okay. You know how I am about time. Probably closer to two decades. <laughs> I am terrible with time. Um, and I liked it then. And I think if I watched it now, I'd see a, there were a lot of problems with the premise. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, that's fair. But you know, a movie that has no problems with the premise is Interview with a Vampire. So why don't we summarize it for the listeners right now? I don't agree. Watch us die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a movie about two vamp dads and their vamp daddies, their adopted daughter, and. uh how they live their best life together. Oh, well, also their tumultuous relationship. Okay, fine. Shenanigans ensue. <laughs> so the two dads are Louis and Lestat. Louis was turned by Lestat after he lost his family and was kind of sad about it. Now, it's important to note that this movie has an interesting framing device where Louis is in... San Francisco, back when it was very cool, not like today, and he's being interviewed by Christian Slater and telling his life story about his complex love affair with Lestat. Yes. And uh, the interviewer's name is Daniel, I found out this time. Just a little, in case anybody needs to know that. <laughs> I think his name is Christian. <laughs> I thought his name was Interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah... Louis and Lestat are kind of figuring out how to be vamps together. They do have a tumultuous relationship. Jamie was right. All great passions do. <laughs> Eventually, Louis is getting sick of all this shit. He's Relatable. He's conflicted about, you know, taking human victims. Lestat yeah, is he like a vegetarian or something? <laughs> <laughs> in vampire uh perspective kinda yeah he eats rats a lot of rats yeah fun fact about vampire cannibal or cannibals fun fact about vampire vegetarians the exact opposite of human vegetarians yeah so eventually louis is kind of wandering in a daze he drinks the blood of a young child who we find out later is claudia uh, unbeknownst to Louis, Lestat turns her into a vampire. And Louis's like, that seems unethical, bro. And, <laughs> and Lestat's like, everything I do is unethical, bro. <laughs> yeah. And so they actually live as a family after that. And they have about 30 or 40 good years, it seems like. <laughs> That's not a bad run. Yeah. For, as far as vampires go, I get the impression from all the vamp media that we watched that they seem to, like, not be able to stand each other very much. <laughs> vampires are just like anybody else. So uh, vampires are usually portrayed more like solitary predators, like cougars. Less no, I like vampire cougars, too. <laughs> less like, you know, pack predators like wolves or hyenas. I mean, they are living in a pack. And then there's the theater of vampires. They're definitely like a, a wolf pack. Yeah, so after they kill Lestat for the second time, the <laughs> Louis and Claudia go to Europe. He gets better. <laughs> yeah, both times. He got better. 
<laughs> he has to fight those Atlanteans one day. <laughs> you mean the Telemaskins? That's right. <laughs> and the Atlanteans in the later books. Oh, yes. I, I've never read the books. But anyway, so Louis and Claudia travel to Europe trying to find more of their kind. They travel all over the place, not having much luck. But finally, in France, they're palling around and the vampires find them. And um, Vampires are good at finding shit. It's a group of vampires led by Armand. They are vampires pretending to be humans who have a theater troupe who pretends to be vampires. They are so committed to the theater because they could just be more successful probably murdering people the classic vampire way but instead they have to put on this elaborate stage production where they kill a victim on stage yeah i mean i i get that it's like their kink too but it just seems very complex as a way to procure food yeah armand takes a liking to louis and uh they form a close bond they're bosom companions mm -hmm. maybe even best friends you Such know? good friends. Yeah. And all the guys in this movie, just super good friends. You could say that Armand wants Louis badly. As a friend. As a companion. Yeah. Like Achilles and Patroclus. Mm -hmm. That's right. Exactly. Or Gilgamesh and Enkidu. All the classic best buds. That's so, right. Some, uh, all of the vampires have a dark gift. So it manifests as different like psychic powers. And some of them can read minds, and Louis accidentally gives he and Claudia away when they're visiting the other vampires, uh, because he's thinking of Lestat and that they did him wrong, and one of the other vamps picks up on those thoughts. They basically capture Louis and Claudia and another woman that Claudia was getting Louis to turn for her to be her new caregiver because she kind of knew Louis was going to go away with Armand. Fun fact, in the books, Lestat actually sets this up. Yeah, I think her name is Madeline. So the other vampires capture all three of them and are going to put them to the death because they judge them guilty of killing another vampire. You're also not supposed to turn a child into a vampire, so there's that. All these rules for being a creature of the night. I know, and they were not subject to those rules when they were living in their own family unit until they joined, tried to join the vamp community. So what that tells you is avoid society. That's the theme <laughs> of this movie. So, oh, wait, too late. You're living in one. So Claudia and Madeline are put into basically a dry well or something like that. And a sun hole. Yeah. That's right. You know, your sun hole, it's a deep well that you have a cage on the top and the sun comes in. If you've seen the first season of What We Do in the Shadows, you're familiar with this. Exactly. Also, spoilers for the last episode of season one of What We Do in the Shadows. Maybe the second to the last episode. So, yeah, they unfortunately perish when the sun hits them. They died as they lived. Dusty. <laughs> Oh my god, those two dead people died. Louis was being buried alive in a coffin in the wall, but Armand saves him, but he didn't have enough time to save the other two. Uh-huh, sure he didn't. I was going to say, he doesn't have time. I had to go save Louis, who was going to be in a wall for hundreds of years. I couldn't go save the people who were going to die in immediate, eminent death. Yeah, yes. it didn't make sense. He really meant that 
his power only went so far because he was not an official leader of that group. So, um, they, the other vampires didn't really have qualms with Louis. They were just fucking with him. So they let Armand, they basically let Armand save him. And, um, yeah, Louis exacts revenge against the other vampires. Fiery revenge. Yeah, and with a scythe. (laughs) The best kind of revenge is served fiery and also with a scythe. So, uh, yeah, fire is a recurring theme in this. And uh, Louis and Armand are palling around for a while, but Louis eventually goes his own way because he's just too depressed. (laughs) I get it. We've all been there. And, uh... He just concludes his interview with Daniel. We go back to the present day of the film, and uh, he says, yeah, so that's it. I'm just kind of empty inside. Yeah. And Daniel's like, it can't end this way. I won't let it. And he wants Louis to turn him. Louis distraught. He's like, dude, not another one. And so- (laughs) Fucking vampire groupies. Yeah. He scares off Daniel, and when Daniel's driving over- the Golden Gate Bridge, Lestat visits him and uh, says he's going to give him a choice if he wants to be turned or not, like he never had, which is something he had said to Louis earlier in the film. And then uh, we kind of pan back while Lestat is laughing maniacally. And while Guns N' Roses' cover of Sympathy for the Devil kicks in. Yeah. Woo woo. <laughs> well, on that note, we should probably head into the Delve. Welcome to The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Interview with the Vampire. So guys, it's Pride Month. We wanted our patrons to pick between a selection of movies that had as many overt LGBTQI plus themes as we could. Yeah. Interview with the Vampire really seems like a perfect film for that in a lot of ways. Yeah, with our caveat of it being a fantasy movie, it was... Not too easy to find. Yeah, unfortunately, that is true. But, you know, as Cass said, this movie is almost 30 years old. It's from 1994. And it's interesting to me that at the time it came out, I don't remember, and I was pretty young, so maybe it just flew over my head, but I don't remember a lot of discussion of, like, how overtly queer-coded these characters are. Yeah, I don't remember that being... A major part of the discussion around this movie it was uh i mean it's pretty obvious and it's been discussed a lot since then but when it first came out i think people were just like yeah vampires they're they're just doing their thing and Uh to be clear we're talking about like the mainstream reviewers and stuff of the film obviously plenty of people could have easily picked up on these elements of the film right it's kind of like uh the idea of boy love where it's coded a certain way, but no obvious romantic overtones. Right. That's a good comparison. Like, especially in modern film and cinema, like kind of international media that is portraying what are pretty clearly homosexual relationships, but they never quite pull the trigger as it were. Yeah. It's about as obvious as a slap in the face, if you ask me. Sure. Yeah. 
they they say lines throughout the throughout the film like oh the more you disagreed with me the more i needed you right and like the more i i craved you near me and stuff yeah. like that i'm like mm, i don't know if i talk to random people like that. yeah, yeah like, let's I mean, was like the more you resisted becoming a full vampire the more i wanted you yeah that's right. Yeah, and it's just, it's fascinating to me how hard in the other direction the sort of pseudo-sequel sequel to this movie that we've already discussed previously, The Queen of the Damned, goes. Yeah. Where it is like, they go so far into cutting out any type of implied homosexuality to Lestat, and they just make him full-on, like, just obsessed with chicks. Yeah. It's true. Uh, the method of turning into a vampire in this... Uh, well, the first thing's first. It starts with Lestat sucking on Louis's neck, right? Yeah. That's right. Uh, which is an inherently intimate gesture. And Sounds like a totally normal thing between friends to me. And yeah. he's embracing him, and their limbs are all intertwined and everything. That's right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, Jack, the point you're getting at is there's a very sexual feeling. Yeah, to it's true. There's the turning process. always a sexual feeling to vampires. Why are there so many vampire romances if being turned into a vampire isn't a romantic sexual act, right? Yeah, it definitely mimics sexual acts for sure. Yeah. Well, and also the way it is shot, the scene is shot, there's this feeling of Lestat saying, like, it's okay. Just go with it. You're going to be uncomfortable at first. This is going to be a new experience for you. But don't worry. In the end, you are going to be in ecstasy. Yeah. Basically, basically like, lean into your feelings and be who you truly are. And you're going to be amazed at how the world will come alive for you. Now, the thing about the story of the film, though, is that Louis is always resistant to it, right? He is like a closeted gay man who doesn't, like, is in a relationship. Yeah. But can't admit it or or still feels this tremendous amount of shame. He's constantly saying, like, I don't want to do the things that make a vampire a vampire. And he's in constant mental anguish. That's true. I think he might be bisexual, right? Because at the beginning of the movie, he lost his will to live because he lost his wife and daughter. Yeah. Who it seems like he loved a lot. And it doesn't mean there aren't a lot of gay people who are in heteronormative relationships and they care a lot for the people, but it's just not right for them. He seemed to lose his will to live with his family. True. Yeah. And uh, throughout the course of the film, we see him find two romantic relationships with men. But the backdrop is that it started with a woman. That is an interesting point that uh, Louis has shame about his relationship with Lestat, but seems more open about it with Armand. So it might just be that Lestat is a shitty lover. Yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of a huge shithead in this film and in Queen of the Damned. But by the... I don't know about that. I think your original reading might hold up because by the time they go to France... It's been many years that they've been traveling, and by that point, he's kind of come to terms with who he is, and he's living as a vampire. He he feeds on people by that point. So it with your analogy, 
he would have come to terms with his identity by that point. Now, there's another element, though, that you're making me think of. It is very fitting that they go to France, a place that has been historically more open to gay relationships. Coming from America, we're talking, what, 1800s by the time they leave? Not a great time in America for being a queer person. No. France would have been a more open place for that. And Louis even says, like, here in this part of Europe, we're going to be more accepted as vampires. Yeah. By other vampires. It's true. So implying that there is a community. And we see when they get to France that there is actually literally a community of vampires who live together, like, kind of openly. And he has French heritage being a Creole. I mean, his so, name is Louis. Yeah. So he feels like he's, it's kind of like a homecoming for him in that way, too. But yeah, so they are looking for more people to form a community with. That's right. And when he and Lestat are together, Lestat is trying to show him the ropes, like you guys said. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... Trying to show him the ways of being a vampire, the ways he was taught, and the way he's experienced it. But he isn't able to conceptualize other ways of existing, which is what Louis sees. Because he feels there are other ways you can be as a vampire, and uh, Lestat doesn't help him find that at all. And that communication breakdown and sort of imposing imaginary limitations on each other makes their relationship pretty rocky. But you guys said when we were watching it, when they're beginning to turn their daughter into a vampire, how it's so close to like a a couple having a kid to try and save their marriage. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Lestat's like, oh, you know what will fix our broken relationship? A child. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Never gone wrong in the history of humanity. It doesn't really fix their relationship. They just <laughs> form new bonds with the child. Yeah, well, in a way, it kind of pushes them farther apart. They they yeah. spend more time together. Louis kind of talks about that, but we don't really see much of that on screen. Louis was going to leave Lestat before they got the child. <laughs> it's right. Well, Louis is a very nurturing person. Yes. And so bringing in a child just made him care for the kid way more than Lestat. Yeah. Cut, like, 20 minutes later to when the kid is slicing Lestat's throat open. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's be very clear. Claudia is, like, a homicidal 10-year-old. Like, when she gets turned into a vampire, she leans in pretty hard. She takes on a lot of Lestat's more toxic vampiric traits. And even to the point where she starts doing things that even Lestat finds repugnant, like keeping dead bodies in her bed. Yeah. Yeah, that's because she can never grow up and her body will never change. And she wants to be able to grow into being an adult and enjoy her life that way. But when she realizes that that'll never happen, she kind of loses it. Yeah, you know that conversation that vampires have to have with their kids. Now, kiddo, your body's going to be not going through some changes now, and we need to have you understand this. Yeah. Your hair is always going to be in the same places. Yeah, that part didn't make any fucking sense. When uh, Claudia cuts her hair, she's like, oh, I hate the way uh, Lestat styles my hair. She cuts it off, but then it just goes back. It grows back, sure, but it grows back in the same style that she said that Lestat styles it into. 
It seems like they intentionally kept her kind of naive and innocent and never explained the true nature of what they were to her. She never goes through a mental maturity, even though she's like 40. Yeah. Yeah. Technically 40. Her brain never starts developing the chemicals to kind of bring it into adulthood. Right. (laughs) I'm just remembering what we do in the shadows and how... um, Laszlo turned a baby. Oh, God. (laughs) Which is a parody on this movie. (laughs) I mean, a lot of parodies of this film in What We Do in the Shadows. Everybody, go watch What We Do in the Shadows. It's amazing. That's just wild. But I want to talk a little bit more about Louis and Armand, right? Oh, please. It's really clear to everyone involved when Louis and Armand meet each other they're pretty into each other, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, like almost immediately. And their daughter, whose name is... Claudia. Perceives this as well. And she confronts Louis about it, saying, like, Oh, I know what's going on. I can tell how much you two want each other. And when you guys get into each other, you're gonna stop caring about me. It right. seems like she had... some One of her psychic abilities, her dark gift, is like having empathy where she can... She talked about being able to feel what Armand felt for Louis. Yeah. Guys, what are your vampire dark gifts? (laughs) This is going to turn into uh, Twilight 5. Oh, God. Where it's just like an X-Men movie because of all the vampire abilities. (laughs) Oh, that would be actually kind of fun. Maybe we got to keep going with the series. Isn't that just Morbius? (laughs) I'm Morbin. (laughs) It's Morbin time. Uh, But... Yeah, she's jealous of the bond Louis and Armand have. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of uncomfortable because she, the line between familial and romantic feelings blurs between Claudia and Louis. That's kind of a recurring motif throughout this movie. It's so hard not to be horny for the sad Louis vampire. (laughs) I mean, Brad Pitt, still to this day, pretty fucking hot. This was like also peak pit hotness. That's yeah. right. And peak well, for time, some people. peak time to be angsty too. So Louis is put into an eternal prison. Yes. While Claudia and Madeline, of course, are going to be burned in the sun hole. A very short term prison. Right. Now, Armand could have saved them first. I'm pretty sure he very intentionally did not do it. Because they were keeping affection that could have gone to Armand, just like Claudia was saying. I think he also says that, like, the other vampires basically will let him save Louis, but not the child vampire. He basically said after he didn't have time that, like, he wouldn't have been able to save her because they wouldn't have let him, yeah? But I think he didn't try either. I, I strongly suspected, like you, Jack, that... Honestly, like there was a small part of him that was happy she was gone because he kind of saw her as a barrier. Definitely. When one door dies, another one opens. It's kind of like, oh, no, your family got in the sunlight. Oh, no. You and I are going to have to go on sexy vampire adventures. That's right. Uh, and, and then uh, you killed all of my mooches. Oh, darn. Oh, no. Now there's nothing keeping us from traveling the world together. <laughs> Can I just say that Antonio Banderas is woefully underused in this movie? Yeah. He has so little screen time. He is just fantastic. As he Armand. has such an amazing presence, commanding presence. Yes. 
And uh, there's some good. I I believe the the longing stares oh, between God, yes. Armand and Louis. Yeah, it's good. Absolutely, the like pull. You can feel the pull toward each other. Yeah, definitely. And uh, magnetism, vampiric magnetism. Yeah. yeah. And after they're together, once the fallout has settled, there's a discussion where Armand is like, "All right, now you and I can travel together, right?" Things like that. And Louis gets right up in his face like he's going to kiss him. Yeah. And uh, yes. they are like an inch away, lip to lip, right? Yeah. And uh, they're like quivering, right? And they're, <laughs> yeah. they're shaking with anticipation. And then Louis backs off as a way to spite Armand. Yeah. And true. so it's like, oh, I, uh, like the thing I really want the most in the world is being with you, Armand. Like, uh, undeniably so. But I wouldn't be human anymore if I went with you, right? I think that was what he was getting at. Yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, that is where Louis really feels like a queer character who can't come to terms with their own desires. He's never really comfortable. Even in France, even after a few years or whatever, he still rejects this feeling that he has for Armand and ends up Basically unhappy for the rest of his life because of it, it seems like. At least until the interview. We don't know but what happens to him after that. But we know he's unhappy up to that point, too. Yeah. Also, again, for, like, locational coding, Louis is living in San Francisco in the 90s. Yeah. Yes. A gay mecca. Right. It's true. David Bowie already blessed the city with his... Semen. <laughs> <laughs> Many times over. Yes. Yeah. Maybe maybe people were talking about the queerness of this movie at the time, and I just had no fucking clue because I was, like, 11. So, uh, there's an issue with viewing vampirism and Louis' queerness as the same thing. Thank you. I was feeling the same thing, and I wanted to talk about this, too. Because the vampirism is viewed as being inherently amoral. True. Yeah. And Louis' resistance of it is supposed to make him seem incredibly virtuous. And like a noble character. Yeah. Yes. This is a common theme throughout a lot of fiction that codes queerness or otherness as a monster character. And it, I believe the intention is usually not to be cruel towards people of different identities. But because of that overlay of monsterism there are often concerns like we're discussing here. Yeah. And we talked about this a bit a couple weeks ago in our Monster Prom episode, where in that game, everybody's immoral. That's so right. So it doesn't strike as a thing where it's saying like, oh, like these behaviors are immoral. It's like, no, these are characters in an in immoral world that also exist and love and have relationships whereas this movie more explicitly you could read it as saying if the vampires are queer coded and monstrous you it's easier to make that connection right that is a negative feeling about queerness for example and that louis is moral for kind of resisting it right so yeah it's like with vampires they're typically considered you know to be something that symbiotically will or not even symbiotically but that will feed off of the life of others it's kind of like a parasite and having characters that have those qualities that are also queer 
kind of unfortunately feeds into like old negative stereotypes about queer people and about how they are amoral and like their lives are amoral, you yes. know? Yeah, it's not even that old in all parts of the country or the world or the state, right? Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. The idea that queer people are predatory is, you know, it's good to have representation, but they're, you're also showing them as being predatory. <laughs> yes, quite literally in this context. Yes. And it's like Lestat is grooming Louis. Yes, that's true. And um, that's a negative stereotype about queer people, too, that's inaccurate, but it gets portrayed a lot. And so that's an unfortunate part of the film, too. Even though, it is, like you said, Jack, it's nice to have representation. The way they chose to portray Lestat kind of feeds into those negative stereotypes. Yeah, and the fact that Louis always resists what makes him a vampire. And then he is the perspective character that we are pretty much supposed to empathize with and probably kind of take on his perspective a bit. I'll tell you what. They really, like, for as for as little as they tried to cover up this being a queer movie, when Louis and Armand nearly kiss, it's just absolutely pornographic. <laughs> Might as well have just let them do it. You know what I'm saying? They were so close, it basically was a kiss. I got pregnant from watching. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Louis is kind of set up as having character traits that are in opposition to his state of being a vampire. That's right. And I want to just give a quick shout out for this film being at least slightly more representative. Well, God, it's a low bar. The Crimes of Grindelwald. Oh, where God. Where they show gay Dumbledore and Grindelwald holding hands, and that's supposed to be... And uh, gay sex right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this movie was more authentically queer than much media 30 years later today. Exactly. Yeah. But let's talk more about Louis' characteristics, which you just set up. First off, he's Brad Pitt, incredibly handsome. That's right. So to start out with, it's crazy he became a vampire, right? Because... What happened is he's a young guy. Let, let's uh, establish young plantation owner. That's right. Yeah. Boo. But we'll talk about what that more in a minute. Yeah, it's true. He's supposed to be a very moral character. He's like a noble slave owner. Yes. Is how they portray it, him. It was pretty cringe. His slaves, uh, one of which played by Thandie Newton, which was kind of cool. I didn't remember she was in this movie. There, she at least as a representative is like, oh, but you're such a good master. It's like, oh no, what is happening? It was awful. And by the way, Jamie, I love how you were in the middle of Jack trying to talk about Louis. You're like, oh, we'll come back to the plantation owner, but right now we're going to talk about it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of his characteristics. He's, like yeah, yeah. Jack said, he's a noble slave yeah. owner. That's in air quotes. That's right. right. Yeah, so he's a noble slave owner. Oh, God. In air quotes. In air quotes, massively. And his wife and daughter have died. I don't remember how. Maybe Lestat ate them. <laughs> we'll say sadness. Yes. Uh, his wife died in childbirth, so they both I mean, this died. is the 1700s. That was the way to die. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, uh... Real classic. So, he loses all... He becomes, like, a nihilist, right? He's like, uh... Nothing matters. 
Uh, he lives his life in despair, going around gambling. A man threatens to shoot him. He just, like, takes all his clothes off. <laughs> He's like, do it. Shoot me. Shoot my hot, sexy, naked body. <laughs> he just wants to die. Yeah. This guy's like, wait a minute. You're too sexy. I can't kill you. Oh, it happened again. <laughs> He's supposed to be somebody who's vulnerable and who has a big heart. Yeah. Right? And a big heart, which is about to stop beating. So Lestat sees this guy who has no concern for his well-being and is like, oh, interesting. It's my type. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he sucks him off a little bit. Yep. He drops him in the water. Mm-hmm. So Brad Pitt had one wild night. And <laughs> he had a little death. Yeah. yeah. That is an old poetical term for an orgasm, yes. but also a good metaphor for becoming a vampire. It's a French metaphor as well. La petite mort? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the little nut. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> and so, uh. I didn't know that mort meant nut. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this this is a guy who just, like, has no no desire for anything basically except like Oblivion. dying kind of but not he's not motivated enough to do it himself thank goodness except Lestat is like hey want to live for it you know how you hate living and want to <laughs> die want to never die want to want to be a monster and, and so, he's just like oh yeah sure sounds good I mean, yeah, fuck it. I'll try anything once. And Lestat's like, huh, let's pretend it works like that. And yeah. so he turns him. And Louis pretty much instantly is like, oh, no, I'm a monster. I care about all this morality. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you just fucked up majorly to learn that lesson. He still <laughs> considers himself to be human with vampir- a vampiric curse, basically. Yeah. He doesn't want to hurt other people. That's good. He just still considers himself to be a part of the world, not separate from it. That's right. And he considers the transformation to be beautiful because it opens his eyes to a world of different perspectives, supernatural, magical perspectives, which humans can't even comprehend. He says it's unimaginably beautiful. Yeah, that's why I feel like the metaphor is kind of mixed or uneven in this movie. Right. Because like he seems to have this like momentary passion. Or maybe this is accurate. He finds something new. It's exciting for a minute, but it quickly loses its luster too. That's right. It's a metaphor for butt stuff. And so, anywho. <laughs> Locked one back there. Yeah. <laughs> First time he had sex with Lestat. Basically. No, not at. Well, maybe it could be. But uh, anyway. So he sees some kind of value in being a vampire, but it doesn't really stick because instantly he's mopey about that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Without hesitation. Uh, Lestat has him drink some of this woman's blood and he's like, wow, this is actually pretty messed up. It's like, what do you think you were getting yourself into? And Lestat starts feeding him rats and he's like, I guess this is like the fruit of a vampire, right? I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> Because I eat rats and poodles. Oh and Yeah, Lestat kind of shows him that you can survive that way, but it's not really living. Yeah. Well, it's also yeah. interesting that de- that Lestat frames Louis' behavior as debauched. Yeah. Like eating animals instead of people. 
It's like having sex with animals instead of people. Oh god. It it it's like basically denying who you are and trying to live a false life because he's still putting on a front uh, when he's at home and pretending to have these lavish dinners but not eating any of it. Right. And it's kind of like pretending not to be gay basically like he's in the closet. He's at- performing humanness. Yeah. So that's kind of like performing heteronormativity when his reality is different from that. It is so troubling talking about vampirism and queerness. It is. Just it, because it's, it's difficult. like <laughs> the vampire's bite is a very sexual act. Very romantic, very sexual. So Louis only does it to animals. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's troubling. Also, it's like, ah, it's being gay and it kills people. It's like, hmm. I don't like this. Yeah, and you're feeding off of the welfare of others. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we didn't even address this earlier. You turn people into vampires. You don't turn people gay. Yeah, it's kind of Despite like... Despite what Fox News wants you exactly. to believe. It's like the negative stereotype that you can be groomed to be something that you're not. Yes. And, like, that you're so tormented about passing that on to other people. Because right. one of the things it's, Louis doesn't want to do is pass it to other people. It's something that, you know, is attributed to trans people as well. Yeah. This could also be read pretty easily as an AIDS metaphor, given yeah. the era that this movie is from. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. 1994. We're talking a real hotbed of discussions about how AIDS is running rampant through the gay community and a lot of people I mean if you were a gay person in this era you probably knew multiple people in your community who had died of AIDS or were going to die of AIDS yeah and you know I mean there's boy this is like such a huge and fraught topic but I recently read Cassandra Peterson's biography. That's uh, Elvira. Uh, yes. And she talked about having a lot of gay friends and in the 80s and 90s and how many of them tragically died from AIDS. I, I've heard a lot of people mourning that we don't have a lot of older gay representation yes. because of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And of course, many straight people and people of all kinds of sexualities catch AIDS and can die from it. And especially at this time when there was so little understanding of it. But it was very much framed in the popular imagination as a quote-unquote gay disease. And this affected policy. Yes, absolutely. Also, I'm a little bit younger. I'm 24. I was just having a conversation with like a pretty decent sized group of people who were not aware that AIDS was considered a gay disease. And I was like, oh, we need better history on this. This was not long ago. Yeah. True. But I mean, the fact that it is no longer framed that way is a great thing. But then people not knowing that history means it could very easily repeat itself. Uh, yeah. Also, just that the community took such a large hit and people just aren't always aware of that definitely that's rough yeah but yeah so i imagine there is an element of that narrative running through this movie and louis resistance to quote-unquote passing on vampirism right i wouldn't be surprised also 
just a little bit more on the morals of Louis when he's talking to Armand after they've killed the whole coven of vampires, right? Yeah. Armand is saying like, oh, you and I, we can adapt to the future and together we don't have to suffer, right? We can embrace ourselves. Yeah. And Louis says, uh, like, in an earlier scene, Louis thought that he had given up the last pieces of his humanity when he was going to turn that woman to be a mother for Claudia. Claudia. And uh, he said he thought he gave up the last pieces of his humanity. But in this conversation with Armand, he says he doesn't want to get rid of the suffering. He's like, what if that's not my plan? Armand is like, don't you want to get rid of your suffering? He says, no, because that's the last piece of my humanity that I have to remember all the people I've hurt and the people that I've loved and lost. That's what keeps me a human. And that's an element of like the gothic heroism of Louis, right? Like, yeah. Oh, well, I have to suffer for the sins of humanity. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's a very Byronic yeah. narrative. Yeah. It also keeps him just from becoming, like, the monster he is scared of becoming, though, just, like, type of vampires that he just killed. Yeah, and, like, Lestat, who yeah. is a prick. Yeah. On the other- Even if he's a prick that we can kind of, like, empathize with sometimes. Yeah. On the other hand, Louis could just be mistaking his suffering that he thinks of as his guilt that's tying him as his last- the, his last thread to humanity, he could be mistaking that as an mental and emotional anguish for not examining his own shadows and what lies in there. And if he has been struggling with being in the closet with the gay allegory, you know, and like not really being himself, that could be part of his shadow self. And he could be more fulfilled and actualized if he were to find a way to accept who he is himself. But then he wouldn't be a gothic icon. True. <laughs> it's true. I think it's very tragic. The way that love has to be portrayed as a monstrous thing in media so often. When it's portrayed as heroic, when it's heteronormative, that it's been coded as monstrous when it's gay. And again, it happens in this series. When you jump to the next film and Queen of the Damned, we've got Lestat as the character that we're supposed to be emotionally resonating with. But also with Louis, like Jack's saying, it's kind of portrayed as being a noble act that he rejects the love of Armand and just suffers for being who he is. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bummer. It's a real shame they went that direction, especially because the conversation that he and Armand were just having easily could have gone the other way with Armand agreeing with Louis. They were so close to being in step together, and it felt like the person who made that not work was Louis. Because Armand was just talking about how adaptability is what he values the yeah. most. Yeah. And how Louis is the one that says, sorry... I'm not going to try to make this work and yeah. leaves. Yeah. Despite the, again, woefully short screen time, Armand is one of the most relatable characters in this movie. And I think one of the most, I would say actually heroic because he says, Hey, you can be a new person. You can change and evolve and you can find happiness. And it's really sad. Like Jack is saying, it is very tragic because Louis is unable to accept himself for who he is because of, all of the cultural norms that are about gender that are 
toxic and sexuality. And he's kind of internalized that. And um, he thinks that he's a monster and so he should suffer. He can't be happy. And that is what keeps him from being happy. Yeah. And he's someone who has formed a few connections through his lifetime. He's like 200 something years old, right? Uh, he was from the 1700s. So yeah. a little bit older. Yeah. So back then he had a wife and a kid or like uh, almost uh, kid. Yeah. Well, yeah. His, wife. his wife died in childbirth. And he found Lestat, he had Claudia, and he had Armand, and that's like four people across over 200 years. Now he's effectively a recluse. And uh, what is the lesson we're supposed to take away from that? Because he's supposed to be the moral character, but he's kind of become a misanthrope at the end. Uh, He exists to suffer nobly, and then be by himself. And yeah. not form any meaningful connections with anyone. Yeah. It's funny because the text of the movie keeps saying like, oh, I found happiness this way or that. But he's never happy. He's always a mopey boy. It's true. Yeah. Now, one of the things in the movie, like an actual element of the film towards the end is Louis. Of course, Hollywood has to jack itself off saying, oh, then movies came about and it gave me a new lease on life because I could see sunsets and the magic of Hollywood. I'm like, oh, fuck you. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. but- and again, he's still not happy. This is He's saying that to Christian Slater, the interviewer, and we know that Louis is not happy. He's still a miserable fuck. It's true. I don't really appreciate how the movie is like, oh, if you want to be good, you have to fight your nature and be and suffer and be unhappy, right? It's yeah. like, yeah. I mean, that's the gothic influence for sure, but I get what you're saying. Like, it doesn't lead to a satisfying character necessarily. Does gothism normally care about being like a moral, morally integral character? Yeah, definitely. The gothic uh, novel was very much a morality story. Interesting. Well, I about guess like it lived do- up to that. Yeah, it was about like doing the right thing in a lot of ways, despite what culture, the culture around you might be telling you to do. You know, we are getting all of this through Louis' perspective, and we don't really get to hear the story from Lestat's perspective. No, that, they save that for eight years later. Yeah. <laughs> when he discovers new metal. Yeah. But um, it's possible that we have an unreliable narrator here. Because everything is being filtered through his morose perspective. That's a great point. And his inability to accept himself. And he might paint others in his mind that are accepting of themselves and don't see themselves as monstrous for living their lives in according to their truest self. And if somebody like Lestat is open and out and living life fully and being happy and is pressuring Louis to do the same and Louis not ready to do it, he might be resentful of that and feel threatened and think of the other person as an antagonist. It's true. And that helped me put into words just now something that had been bothering me. Louis has no character progression in this movie. No, he keeps saying he does, but he actually doesn't. It's He has a very flat character. He might have a change of perspective, but that is internal and does not change his behavior, really. 
And then he goes back on it. Yeah, he does. He goes back on it a lot. Going with Armand would have been the character progression. Definitely. At the end of the movie, he's still like miserable, distances himself from people. And like, he's kind of a lot like he was at the beginning of the film. Very much so. I, you know, Cass, this unreliable narrator angle is actually really working for me, too, because it fits the pieces together pretty nicely if you think about it. What do we know about Louis? We've talked about this up to this point, but, like, going back to an earlier thing, he is a slave-owning plantation sharecropper. Yeah. He is telling this perspective about, like, oh, I was this noble slave owner. He admits to basically having sexual relations with Thandie Newton's character. Or Thandie Newton basically says that to him. And he doesn't seem to have any moral qualms about owning people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, like, he's telling this story about, like, oh, the slaves were totally happy with me being their owner. And they liked that I was fill in the blanks here. This is just such a disturbing implication. Yeah. But then... A couple scenes later. Right, when the plantation is burning down, the slaves outside are, like, cheering for the destruction well, of the plantation. And it's house. like, oh, they are starting to rise up against him, but, oh, let me help you as the noble white slave owner dismantle my authority over you. And he takes that oh, autonomy yes. away from them, and he burns down his house. Yeah, he goes outside and says, you're all free men, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it's like the magnanimous noble slave owner. Yeah, it it was pretty gross. Also, like, we're we're getting his perspective on Lestat, and oftentimes people who have been in troubled relationships will focus very heavily on the bad. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to. It's like a human programming thing. Yeah. And all we really hear is what a shithead Lestat is, with very little... Well, we do get some evidence at the end that he's kind of a lunatic when he attacks Christian Slater. I mean, he can read minds, so he knew that Daniel wanted to become a vampire. Sure. He's not about keeping people from doing the things they want to do, you know? Right. But I guess what I'm really getting at here is that, at the end of the day, this is all about class, right? Louis is an aristocratic shithead. Yeah. Or I guess a, a whatever, a merchant class shithead in this context of, of the 1700s America. But yeah, no, he, he exerts his will over people. He sees this kind of nobility in his own actions, clearly through his narrative. But at the end of the day, Louis kind of shit, right? Yeah. He commits, you know, horrendous murder against the other vampires. He attacks Claudia and lets her be turned by Lestat. And when he doesn't feel like Daniel is, like, getting the right point, he just kind of disappears. He's very flippant about his behavior. Well, he attacks him first. Louis attacks Daniel and then disappears. Yeah. So it's worse. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, Louis is framed as kind of the moral center of this movie, but he's actually incredibly immoral. Yeah. If you take a deeper look at his actions and his social location. But yeah, it really does fit with that idea of like an unreliable narrator where he is like really talking himself up saying like, oh, I learned these lessons, but you know, the world around me wouldn't let me change kind of thing. Right. 
But really, he was too afraid. But also, his social power was still like part of his brain, where he still believed himself to be better than everybody else. Right. That was still driving his behavior with this idea that he knew what was best. And he never really let himself see any other people's perspectives. And, you know, that's really represented by his unwillingness to develop the relationship with Armand. Yeah. Where he won't let his perspective change because he's already decided that he knows what's best. Or with anybody else since then. Except for those fucking Hollywood elites. And honestly, wanting to get his story out there through this interview is... It's another vanity project? Yeah. It's pretty self-centered, really. Yeah, and as soon as he doesn't like where the interview is going, he decides that he is going to just kind of shut it down. Mm-hmm. And he does it by enacting violence and then disappearing. Yeah. Which is kind of his only way of handling any of his problems throughout the entire movie. He gets himself into a situation where he has to make a decision. He chooses violence and abandonment. Yep. Because he can't face who he really is and what he really wants out of life. It is a tragedy. All right. Well, I think we've covered all the ways that Louis is actually a huge shithead. (laughs) So at this point, we can probably move into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating between 1 and 10 size? Ah, size. I heard size. (sighs) Yes. (laughs) All right. I give it 10 out of 10. (sighs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. I'll give you an epic moment or feature. I think it's got to be the scene with Louis and Armand after the tragedy has struck. Just how excited Armand seems about the idea of, like, starting over with Louis. He was like, you know, I was the head of those vampires, but I never really, they weren't really my guys. They just started following me. I feel tight with you, and I think you and I got places to go. The other vampires didn't have the right headspace. I think you probably do. They had yeah. chemistry. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, let's let's uh, just say that was the best part and cut it off right when they're about to kiss. And uh, there was no more scene after that. Yeah. The end. Yeah. And so uh, I think that was pretty cool. I like Armand a lot. He's probably the most interesting character. And uh, philosophically, I would have liked to hear more of what he had to say. Not as an example to live by, but just I think it would be very neat. And uh, overall, rating this movie is kind of interesting right now, considering only at the end of the episode did we kind of blow my perception about the main character. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. No. Or you're welcome. I actually started that discussion. (laughs) (laughs) You've made your coffin, now lie in it. Exactly. (laughs) The coffins, which are a necessity because the narrator said so, but we don't see evidence for Uh Vampires. That's right. <laughs> we have to fit tradition. I'll probably give this movie five out of ten scythes on account of it's kind of fun. I like that it's overtly queer, even though it's problematic. I like all the actors a lot. 
Great cast. And their performances mm-hmm. are really fun. Yeah. And it it's like a good time to watch. Uh, kind of like an action movie in the sense of don't read into it that much. <laughs> if you can help it. <laughs> you say an hour into us reading into it too much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it, I'd say it's got a lot of issues, but this is probably the second or third time I've seen it. And I'll probably see it a, a handful more times, and that's okay. Because it can be fun to watch with friends. So, 5 out of 10, it's uh, it's fine. That's an honest rating. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Cassidy? What's your epic moment or feature, and then your rating from 1 to 10 farming implement size? <laughs> symbol of death, symbol of harvest. Because <laughs> <laughs> the harvest means death. <laughs> Food equals murder. Wait. <laughs> Subsistence is violence, people. My epic feature is going to be the theater in France where the vamps nice. give their performances and live underneath. Where they vamp it up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like their troupe of actors. I think it's a pretty cool conceit for a group of vampires to kind of pass in society and be accepted for who they are again a troop of actors yeah kind of living in plain sight through subterfuge and just being really open about who they are but through a very thin veneer they're able to um present in a way that people can accept them and um it's a really cool looking theater it's almost looks like ruins that they've um or like a crypt an old crypt that they've turned into a theater it's pretty cool yeah it's pretty great yeah it's pretty cool yeah i'm gonna give this movie six out of ten sides it is enjoyable to watch i i like watching it every now and then it has a neat film score and all of the costumes are amazing and the sets are cool and I think the acting is well done. It just loses points for me for the dicey messaging. That's fair. Yeah. And the kind of complex na- and problematic nature of it. But what about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of 1 to 10 sides? Yeah, let us know your thoughts. Well, guys, I appreciate you asking me that. Despite my gags about how this movie is about Hollywood jacking itself off at the end and saying that movies are like the pinnacle, like I'm going to highlight a scene that is very much, I enjoyed it because of the way it was shot and structured from a filmic perspective. So it's the scene right after Claudia and Louis have, they think they've killed Lestat, but he returns back at their house and it starts with him sitting at the piano playing this mournful dirge and a curtain is flapping in front of him like a funeral uh, shroud. Right. And it's kind of flapping and they're horrified. And Lestat is there in his kind of monstrous, like very inhuman vampiric look. He's almost like an evil spirit that's come back to haunt them. Yeah, yeah. And like the, the film language is great with the shroud, the symbolism. And then... Louis and Claudia fight back and set him on fire. And there's this scene of Lestat burning alive. And he starts crawling up the wall. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like this was all practical, right? This is '94. This wasn't digital effects. There's an actor or a stunt person, really, in basically on fire doing wire work up a wall. And there's this cool shot where they like go up the wall and end up on the ceiling. And I was trying to figure out how they got that shot and everything. And it's just so amazing. This whole sequence is just beautiful. Yeah. I was just gonna correct. He's not technically burning alive because he's a vampire. Yeah. Thank you. but yeah it's this really cool shot it's stuck in my mind and i wanted to highlight it here because i too am a film snob (laughs) just like the people who made this movie yeah as far as my rating goes though i think i'm going to i'll just sit comfortably in the middle and give this a five and a half size so five size and a sickle okay Ooh, it's a pretty good movie it's a pretty fun movie. It is foundational, right? So, I mean, we talked about it throughout this episode. So much media was influenced by this, whether it's parody or the whole, like, kind of vampiric gothic look, right? With the flowery shirts and the billowy jackets and all of that. This yeah. Victorian aesthetic. I absolutely love it. I adore the whole look of the movie. The costumes are great. So many of these actors went on to have illustrious careers. Yeah. Now, the person who wrote the book, Anne Rice. Yes. What What were some thoughts about other works that were converted into movies? <laughs> well, I know that Anne Rice fucking hated Queen of the Damned and thought it was a blemish on her career that the movie was made. I don't know how she felt about Interview, though. Hmm. But yeah, it's, you know, it's a pretty fun movie. It's interesting. I really enjoy the discussion that it helped us facilitate but at the end of the day i think that it should have leaned into louis as an unreliable narrator probably if that was the intention and we could have seen some more evidence that he was not being totally honest or the movie really does think that he's the hero and if so that's a little troubling yeah but so five and a half size that's where i'm landing with this one fair enough makes sense All right, well, that pretty much wraps up our discussion of Interview with the Vampire. But guys, since we are wrapping up Pride Month, should we each offer some suggestions for some other queer media that people can check out besides Monster Prom and Interview with the Vampire? Yeah, totally. My recommendation would be for Heartstopper. It's a great show. It's on Netflix. And it's based on a comic. And uh, it's a feel-good romance about two young men who start falling for each other and it's great just for a point of comparison from our own show this show is as feel good as the night before christmas the yeah movie we discussed a few years ago with practically no conflict there is conflict in the show but it gets resolved in a very satisfying way and um, it's just so goddamn wholesome. There's other LGBTQIA plus representation in the show as well. And so it feels very well rounded in that way. And uh, we all watched it together. I watched it first and loved it so much. I got I roped these two into watching it again with me and it was great. Like the next day. Yeah. <laughs> I can't recommend it enough. It's really outstanding. Same. If it were fantasy, we would have recorded an episode on it true i mean there are those little animations that happen in the live action so maybe it is fantasy that's just like putting a heart over your eyes when you write to make it fancy that's right. that's, not... that's fair yeah 
But I mean, it is magical. So yeah. there's that. But uh, I have so many recommendations for shows that have queer characters and queer relationships. The only issue is a lot of them only pay off at the very end or don't pay off in what we've seen released so far. But it is they're undeniably queer. That is an unfortunate trend in a lot of media. Right. Well, it's also the trend of media that when they have romantic buildup, it doesn't pay off until the end of a show. So if it's queer, that you just don't get to see that until the end. But uh, a show with great queer romantic buildup I'd recommend is She-Ra, the animated show. It's fantastic. And also not a spoiler that it's queer because, my God, if you've seen anything about that <laughs> show and it's not people talking about the ending, how? <laughs> it's also fantasy. That is fantasy. And uh, maybe we'll talk about it one day. I'm not sure. We have a lot on our schedule. But yeah. you should put it on your schedule. Yeah. Because it, it, well, it's a young adult show. And I tend to find that those are very easily palatable. Where they also pay off kind of fast. They tend to have a, le a tendency toward being fun and wholesome. And the show... I never watched things on my own. But I binged it pretty much on my own. It's like four and a half seasons. And uh, I have a friend who just watched all of it in like three days. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, I speak to its quality. I think you'll all enjoy it. Nice. And I think I'm just going to go ahead and re-recommend everybody go and play Monster Prom. Because Cassidy and I have been playing it a lot since we talked about it on the episode. Yeah. And I don't want to give away any of the great representation throughout the story and the way that like the narrative unfolds, but there has just been so many heartwarming moments with some of the characters, even some of the characters that I did not expect to have great identity stories and family yeah. stories and narratives that just are so wholesome and heartwarming. It really just takes me by surprise so often. And I think that's wonderful. And again, as we said in the last episode where we talked about it, it just normalizes every type of relationship. And doesn't question anybody's sexuality. It just lets people be who they are. And I think that's wonderful. And I really wish we had more media where people could just be themselves. Second that. I'll do that too. And also, there are canon non-binary characters. That's which right. Which is great. Yeah. We love that representation. That's right. All right. Well, that'll pretty much do it for us here at Swords and Satire. But as always, if you enjoyed the show... You can follow us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's a great way to keep up with the show, check out our memes, and to get in touch with us. And like we said earlier, if you have a few extra bucks uh, you could throw away every month and you want to be a supporter of the show, you could head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire. You can support our show in that way and get other cool perks. So go check it out. That's right. But if you don't have a few extra coins to slide our way, another great way you can support us, your favorite fantasy movie podcast, is by going through a dark rebirth and living for <laughs> yeah. centuries, telling all your friends and family about swords and satire. Because the best way to experience all the fantasy fun is with the people you care about. That's right. Sounds right to me. All right. Well, until next time. Hail Crom! Hail Crom.